I'm Ben Pauker, FB's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. We've got something a little different for you today. In late September, FP teamed up with our friends at Lawfare for Bar Review Live, a live event in downtown Washington, D.C., featuring former White House counsels A.B. Culvahouse and Bob Bauer. Lawfare's Susan Hennessy asks our guests what it's like to work for the most powerful client in the world. And keep listening as Ben Wittes and I answer audience questions. All right, assorted members of the legal profession. Thank you guys so much for coming to FP and Lawfare's Bar Review Live. This is our first drinking conversation and the least Texas event that's ever been held in this place, clearly. Uh, see, and this is what we want. We want some hooting and hollering at this event here. This is not your average DC thing. So, no, look. All right, that's about enough. Now, we're really thrilled that you guys all came out, and we hope we're in for a really special evening. At FP, we've been long fans of Lawfare's content. They do exceptional work, and we are thrilled to have kicked off a partnership with them this year. Ben, Susan, and Lawfare's regular contributors are now writing special pieces for FP. If you guys aren't already subscribers or haven't scaled FP's registration wall, I encourage you to do so. There's some really great stuff there. Uh, I promise you it's not all slow motion baby cannon tweets. And we are especially honored to have uh, such an esteemed list of contributors here tonight. They really need no introduction, but I'm going to read one anyway. Bob Bauer is a partner at Perkins Coe. He served as White House counsel to President Obama and returned to private practice in June 2011. He was general counsel to Obama for America in 2008 and 2012, and in 2013, he was appointed co-chair of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. He is also general counsel to the Democratic National Committee. A.B. Culvahouse is a partner at O'Melveny. From March 1987 through January 89, he served as counsel to Ronald Reagan, advising the president on matters ranging from the Iran-Contra investigations to Supreme Court nominations to the legal aspects of nuclear missile treaties with the Soviet Union. He also chaired the Interagency Lawyers Committee on War Powers and the President's Committee on Federal Judicial Nominations. We are honored to have them here tonight. Gentlemen, I hope you have drinks and you're ready for this. Uh, to kick off our conversation about perhaps the most difficult job in defending the world's most powerful client, I'd like to bring them to the stage and the brilliant Susan Hennessy to moderate this conversation. A final note, we are going to be recording this for a future podcast. So when we do the Q&A, you know, be smart about it. <laughs> that great introduction and thank you to all of you. Um, this is an amazing turnout for this first event and um, we are certainly very excited to have uh, two former White House counsels um, and are excited to live in a time in which there is this much interest in the role of the White House counsel's office, <laughs> which is a blessing if you look hard enough. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kick it right off because I think we're most interested in hearing uh, what you gentlemen have to say. Uh, so the first is sort of when, when people, you know, ask you 
what, it, what did you do? What is the job of the White House counsel? You know, how do you describe it? What's sort of your, your, your quick answer on that? I was White House, I was White House counsel a long time ago. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's fair to say uh, was then and now you're the institutional counsel for the president and the office of the presidency. Uh, it's your job uh, to... Uh, defend and preserve the president's constitutional prerogatives. Uh, you're a quality control check. Uh, you review for both legality and um, uh, uh, and consistency with the president's decisions. Everything that he signs, approves, and says, and is issued in his name. Uh, as mentioned in my introduction. Uh, uh, the White House counsel now, I believe it's fair to say, Bob, has primacy on judicial selection uh, and uh, obviously uh, defending the, pres the White House and the president uh, uh, in the context of uh, oversight investigations and special counsel investigations is also quite important. Bob, is that, do you have an additional? No, that's right. I would have enjoyed my primacy on judicial selection if it hadn't been for the Congress. <laughs> But one day, as the, as the office expands in authority, who knows what will happen. I agree with everything that uh, A.B. said. The one point I would add is about the difference between the White House counsel's institutional role and the very complicated business of representing a president who is a you know, flesh-and-blood political actor elected to the office to pursue certain policies. So you are, on the one hand, representing the institution and trying to keep those interests very much in mind. At the same time, you're also representing this individual in the Oval Office who's been elected to carry out certain programs and who's obviously looking for you to enable him where the law allows uh, to do that. So that has, that's been an issue that's tripped up a number of White House counsels in the past. So, A.B., you sort of um, referenced this notion of being the White House counsel when there is uh, ongoing investigations. Uh, that clearly is uh, at the top of everyone's minds right now. Um, sort of how do you view, uh, how is the role of the White House counsel different sort of in that period of investigation you served uh, during Iran-Contra um, versus sort of the, the, the ordinary, the day-to-day? That's all I did for the first nine months, frankly. I was uh, White House counsel. I came in, um, all of you were still in grade school probably if you were born, but I came in as part of the Howard Baker rescue team. It was, uh, we had uh, an independent counsel and uh, a joint congressional committee investigating the uh, arms sales to Iran and the diversion of proceeds from those sales to the Nicaraguan democratic resistance. Uh, pretty complicated uh, transaction. Uh, it's uh, it's you're basically you're basically in a damage mitigation role. Uh, if you think about it, I, I I think Ronald Reagan, in terms of domestic politi politics, lost a year of his presidency because of Iran Contra. We got almost nothing done domestically. We had vetoes overridden. We couldn't get 34 Republican senators to vote with us on uh, veto overrides. Uh, one could argue that Bob Bork's uh, not being confirmed to the Supreme Court was uh, partly as a result of the fact that uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, approval ratings were down in the 30s. Uh, so what you're doing is uh, uh, cooperating consistently with Congress, trying to maintain the privileges, the, uh, the constitutional prerogatives that you can, but understanding that every day, uh, Susan, that you're conceding authority that you uh, would, in, in a perfect world, would, uh, would not concede. Uh, indeed, uh, Vice President Cheney, uh, uh, who was then the Republican whip in the House, 
commented to me uh, while I was White House counsel, uh, he bemoaned some of what he thought were the uh, prerogatives of the White House that had been uh, conceded while he was uh, chief of staff during the Ford administration. So there's, there's been a little bit of a tradition, at least at the end of administrations, of bringing in kind of government investigation experts as White House counsels. The expectation that you know, you'll, you'll hit up against an investigation uh, eventually. Uh, I guess the Obama administration um, may have sidestepped that one. Uh, we are only a you know, few months really into the Trump administration. Um, if you were sort of advising on this issue, you know, should they be thinking the way White Houses are usually thinking much further uh, you know, sort of in their tenure? Or would you advise bringing in someone who's sort of an expert in that role? You always have to have uh, that kind of capability on hand. Then when if disaster strikes, uh, then you have to expand that capability. I was fortunate because I was on the receiving end of a lot of threats of lots of investigations when the Republicans uh, took over the House in 2010. Uh, the chairman of the, the incoming chairman of the Government Operations Committee, Daryl Issa, said he planned you know, 62 different inquiries. Uh, he had not uh, actually gotten along with many of them by the time I left. So I was fundamentally left, really, as my primary investigative challenge to prove in 2011 that President Obama was born in the United States, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, which I did by obtaining yet another copy of his birth certificate from the state of Hawaii. So I viewed that as a lawyering triumph of the first order. <laughs> But you need that capability on hand. So when I came in, uh, one of the first uh, people that I recruited to the White House was the excellent, excellent lawyer who became my successor, Kathy Rumler, who both had uh, litigation and white-collar defense experience and had worked in the Department of Justice. Uh, Susan, the first thing I did, uh, uh, I found out I was White House counsel. I was uh, uh, down in Mexico on vacation with four of my law school classmates and our wives, and uh, Howard Baker called me up and told me I was the uh, new White House counsel, that he had resigned my position with my law firm, and there was a military plane on, on its way to pick me up. Uh, so, so, I mean, true story. Uh, <laughs> So, you're, you're lucky you, you got that call before the wall went up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, the, uh, but the first call I made was to uh, a guy who uh, became my deputy for the Iran-Contra investigation, who was a former uh, uh, counsel on the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigation, former uh, AUSA in Chicago, in Chicago and in Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, we built a separate staff of uh, about 12 lawyers, including some people from your old home at uh, NSA, uh, military, uh, DOD, CIA. Uh, I recruited, we did, couldn't find paralegals, Bob, so I recruited archivists from the National Archivist uh, with top secret clearances because everything having to do with Iran-Contra was so highly classified uh, that you needed to build a staff of people with SCI clearances, and that was a challenge. But yes, I mean, I think the, the, the job, the ordinary job of White House counsel is so important, so all-encompassing, uh, that the only way, I think, to deal with uh, a special counsel investigation or a life-threatening congressional investigation is, is to build a separate staff. 
So I think it's sort of an uncontroversial to say that this is an unusual president, sort of an, an atypical president in terms of um, his, his instincts and um, impulsiveness. Uh, you look at Don McGahn, who's the current White House counsel. Um, is his job sort of resemble the jobs that either of you held at, at all, or does he have sort of a fundamentally different role? How does kind of the, the president's personality and the current environment change sort of what his work is? I could think of, I, have, I know Don McGahn from uh, the period of time before he went into the building, and I, I haven't discussed this with him. It's not a question I think I could appropriately ask, but I can think of three reasons why it would be fundamentally very different. First of all, I think it's fair to say, based on all the available public evidence, that Donald Trump's view of the law and the role of lawyers is different than my client's was. <laughs> I'll start with that, and I think that's important. Secondly, I think the White House counsel uh, really does benefit enormously from an acceptance of his or her role and a process, uh, a process-mindedness that supports the council in doing his or her job. The White House Council cannot operate in a White House in which there are endless factions quarreling with each other. Some may be aligned with the White House Council, some may be suspicious of the White House Council, and no predictable procedure for the raising and addressing of legal issues. Now, for all I know, uh, that situation has changed since the chief of staff's position changed, since the, chief, the person holding that office changed. But I can't imagine from the client to the um, apparent um, Wild West kind of character of the deliberative process that we understand to be the case in this current White House, I would imagine it'd be a very, very difficult job for the White House counsel to do. I, you know, as you might expect, I both agree and disagree with Bob. Um, I, um, I think the the legal issues that they're dealing with are pretty similar uh, to those that most uh, White uh, White House have, have dealt with: separation of powers issues, uh, constitutional authority issues, uh, uh, issues uh, regarding statutory authority. Uh, I mean, the the travel ban that uh, that. Uh, uh, Don and uh, Don McCann's uh, dealing with executive orders are some you know have the same legal issues in the main. Uh, I think with the uh, DACA issues that the Obama White House uh, uh, dealt with uh, in the main. The issue and the, what, what is really different is one uh, the uh, the president is is the first to announce and often um, probably. Uh, prematurely announces a lot of initiatives. So you, uh, the White House loves to have communications dis discipline. You really don't have that all the time here. Uh, and, but that's also uh, you know, part of the, of the package, uh, uh, the package with uh, uh, President Trump. I vetted his vice presidential uh, nominees. That was an interesting process. Uh, we, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was a, uh, um, what was one of the more interesting things, and, he, and you see this doing in, in his presidency, he crowdsourced a lot of the process. He would go to a political rally and say, who should be my vice president? And uh, people would call out names, and then I would get a call that night. We'll add, uh, you know, add Susan Hennessy to the list. Uh, you should have done that. Yeah, I should have done that. <laughs> Uh, I should have done that. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, I just didn't think you were 35, Susan. <laughs> so if we, I mean, look, if we sort of have. Um 
uh, Trump derangement syndrome on one end of the spectrum, and and the other is you know we've never seen a president like this ever. You know this is everything is absolutely unprecedented. You know, maybe you sort of described the legal issues as being largely the same. Maybe the president is a little bit different. You know, are we seeing novel rule of law issues, or are we really sort of whenever you get down to the to, to the core of it, pre confronting things we've never seen before in terms of the legal issues we're, we're looking at? I would say yes, and I, I, by the way, based on the last answer, I don't think that uh, actually uh, Avi and I disagree. I just think he's more diplomatic. Uh, <laughs> The view I take of uh, this presidency, and I try really hard, and I, I, I think if you have any institutional commitment at all that you would, uh, to separate out, uh, obviously, the pol my politics, which are you know, dramatically different from, from the president's, um, I take a look at two issues, for example, that I think set the tone for rule of law in this administration from the very beginning. Uh, well, actually, one from the beginning and one more recently. The first was the uh, way in which the president went about resolving his personal business conflicts. I think for a variety of, re variety of reasons which we may not have time to discuss, I think it was wholly unsatisfactory. And I think it uh, really leaves a stain on the institution and creates precedents that are extremely disturbing. And the second was the Arpeo pardon. Now, I could put a few in between, the firing of Jim Comey, the steady public humiliation of his attorney general until the Congress told him to stop. Uh, there are any number of things that we could talk about, you know, language directed toward the courts, critical language directed toward the courts. But I'll just take those two as having, I think, enduring institutional significance. The Emoluments Clause and the Arpaio Pardon. Maybe do you... Do you disagree sort of in the main with, with Bob's point? Or do, you, do you think we're, we're addressing novel issues here or that, you know, this is, it's a different flavor of the same things, you know, we've, we've thought about separation of power, privilege, et cetera, for a long time? Yeah, I respectfully disagree with Bob. <laughs> I'm done. No, I mean, uh, on, the, uh, on the ethics issues, I, I think uh, it, it's quite clear that uh, the conflict of interest statute don't apply to the president, the vice president. Uh, there was, uh, you know, that was intentional. Uh, that was, uh, I think, Boyd and Gray was the uh, who was also uh, one of his predecessors and my successor uh, was responsible for that. And so I, uh, I, you know, the president didn't follow the precedent of other presidents, including the one I worked for, but that. To me, that's not a rule of law issue. That's a political issue. That uh, that's an issue that should uh, that should be thought out in uh, in the political domain. And I, you know, we could get into uh, the history of uh, controversial uh, pardons. Uh, I uh, I don't know uh, all of the factors that went into to that. I. Uh, uh, Mrs. Reagan almost lynched me for had me lynched for part uh, for recommending the pardon you know, of George Steinbrenner, uh, but uh, but uh, there were um, a number of people from your world who were recommending that. So I, I don't know all that went into uh, to that pardon, uh, but the pardoning power is uh, is uh, is absolute. It's uh, it's unreviewable and uh, and for a reason. And again, I think uh, the wisdom or the uh, uh, foolishness of that pardon again is a political decision. It'll be fought out in the political uh, should be fought out in the political process. So, sort of digging back into some of the the process and nitty gritty of the role, what is the difference between a White House counsel and the president's personal attorneys? That's something that sort of is difficult to understand, especially in the midst of an investigation like this. How, how is it? How are those two different things? 
in some instances on some issues, I, I think uh, AB may agree with this, um, and respectfully, uh, <laughs> uh, I hope. The, on some issues, it may be that there is um, legal jeopardy that the president confronts or legal issues that the president confronts in his personal capacity that overlap or touch upon or invade the sphere of official responsibility so that there are institutional interests the White House counsel would be concerned with and there are personal interests that the personal lawyer would be interested in. But that's the fundamental dividing line. Uh, the President of the United States uh, is, uh, retains, obviously, individual responsibility to comply with the law. And if the president has to defend you know, some behavior that brings uh, him within the investigative reach of law enforcement, then uh, the president needs to have private counsel. And among other things, as you well know, during the Clinton era, this is a practical consideration, but I think the larger point would remain the same. Uh, the courts rejected an attempt on the part of President Clinton uh, fundamentally to close those courts of communications with personal lawyers, with uh, well, of government lawyers with the president on those personal matters with attorney-client privilege. And I think that demonstrated the court's belief that the White House counsel is a government lawyer who at the end of the day, as A.B. said earlier, represents the people of the United States, essentially. He represents the government of the United States and the president in his official capacity. The, I mean, Lloyd Culler came to see me uh, when I was early on in my tenure, Lloyd having been uh, White House counsel to President Carter and then later for President Clinton. Uh, and Lloyd... Uh, pointed out that uh, to me that there is a statute uh, which required me as an officer of the United States to report to the Attorney General uh, the commission of any crime of which I became aware. So I mean that if so if the president came in one day and said I just committed tax fraud uh, right there I had an obligation to uh, to go make a report. Uh, so that is, and, and that is the basis upon which the D.C. Circuit and the Eighth Circuit decided that there was no institutional attorney-client privilege uh, between the President uh, and the White House Counsel. Saying that, Ronald Reagan had no personal lawyer on the Iran-Contra investigation uh, until after he left office. Uh, he decided that it, uh, he had done nothing wrong and he was not going to, re uh, to retain uh, personal counsel, although he clearly had personal counsel for taxes and business affairs and that sort of thing. How should we understand the role of someone like Ty Cobb, who is an employee of the White House and not a personal attorney, but is also not within the White House counsel's office and not, uh, doesn't report to, to McGahn? Um, is, that, is that sort of a, a traditional role? I, I can't quite think of a, of a precedent for a lawyer that occupied that space. Is, is that so unusual, or, or is there a different way we should think about it in, someone in that kind of role? I did not have this experience, but I would imagine that if there is a major investigative challenge, consistent with what A.B. said about the importance of building separate operations to address that challenge, having a senior lawyer come in, both to manage that so the White House counsel can go on with his other duties, and also, frankly, to help coordinate the personal and professional side. Because in this administration, for example, in Russia-related matters, there are clearly personal and institutional issues that are presented. And so uh, having somebody who has that, his or her eye on those issues and attends to them and has that as their exclusive focus, it seems to me, is a sensible way of uh, doing things. Now, one reads uh, in the, the paper uh, that uh, the, Mr. Cobb has direct access to the president and um, 
you know, there may be some questions of just how well coordinated the personal and professional, the, these two government lawyers are in their representation of this interest. That seems to me to be a potentially really dangerous problem, uh, but we'll, we'll know more if we have lunch anywhere near the New York Times building. <laughs> um. My uh, my law office is in that bill team, but I did not overhear that lunch. Uh, you didn't have your window open that day. <laughs> no, that, the, uh, that's not an unusual role. Uh, when I came on board the Reagan White House, uh, former Ambassador David Abshire and uh, uh, Charles Brower were already serving in a role of coordinating with the independent counsel just to make sure that all document requests were properly handled, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, Bill Litton, the fellow I, I described, uh, stepped into that role. I think Lanny Davis, to a certain extent, in the Clinton White House, uh, served that role. I mean, the, if you think of it this way, every day that uh, that a special counsel does not receive documents that he or she wants. Every day that a witness stiff arms them, uh, some White House employee, that's a, it's a day where the president's political capital is being frittered away uh, because the, the existence of these investigations erodes public confidence, they erode approval ratings, and so I think it's a very critical role uh, that uh, Ty Cobb is filling. So sort of moving to, to the issue of special counsels, there's been a lot of um, uh, public reports about sort of special counsel Mueller being uh, particularly aggressive or, or moving uh, quite quickly with respect to, to Paul Manafort or others. You know, as you're counseling a president in this sort of intensive investigation space, how does being confronted with something like a, a very aggressive special prosecutor sort of shade the advice or, or shade the, the job? Okay, um, you, you l let me get the softballs right. Um, uh, <laughs> I've, I've known Bob Mueller. Uh, he was the deputy assistant attorney general of the civil, uh, for the criminal division when I was White House counsel. I have immense respect for him. But uh, he brings with him all of the, uh, the dynamic flaws of a special counsel office that Justice Scalia and Morrison v. Olson described. Uh, if you set up an office of 17 highly, uh, high-powered, excellent, hard-nosed prosecutors to investigate a single matter and a single a small group of people, uh, it, is, uh, it is dangerous. It is something you need to pay attention to, one. Two, uh, Bob Mueller and his office are under Aaron the Fishbowl, too. And they're going to be second guess to a fare thee well of whether they investigated every facet of this that, uh, uh, that ought to be investigated. Uh, they're going to be uh, second guess as to whether they've turned over every grain of sand, not whether they've turned over every rock uh, and every pebble. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it, it really changes the dynamic. Uh, it is something that is also very difficult in a White House where you have the business of the most powerful nation in the world being conducted 24-7, trying to separate out the president seeking advice from people who, who don't have a privileged relationship with him, who are not his personal counsel, uh, is, is very difficult to do. And you can, and, and apparently with, with uh, Bob Mueller uh, wanting to see the records from Air Force One, uh, when the president uh, apparently dictated a response uh, 
relating to his son is an example of that. It's really hard to maintain the, the requisite dis discipline uh, to keep the, uh, the government business and the private business separate as they should be. So Bob, you mentioned sort of obviously there wasn't a special prosecutor, but but a really um, uh, quite aggressive Congress and that was really interested in investigating a lot of different topics. Is that so different than something like a special prosecutor? I mean, did you, did you feel that that same dynamic was at play, or is this really something kind of different? I think this is very different. My one experience with anything like what AB has described was the star investigation of President Clinton. In that circumstance, I didn't represent the executive branch, I represented the congressional leadership, represented Dick Gephardt in assembling the defense team in the House, and then I went to the Senate and represented the Senate Democratic majority during the impeachment trial. So my experience is from that side of it, but of course we could observe at close quarters, and I think many people could see uh, around the country, uh, the dynamic that uh, AB describes here. It's, it, 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 there's an enormous amount of pressure uh, on the executive branch. And uh, I think I, I can't find anything to disagree in what AB says about the challenges must present to the lawyers. The one, the one important legal issue, Susan, is executive privilege. Uh, the executive privilege vis-a-vis -a, -vis a grand jury subpoena we know, we know from U.S. v. Nixon uh, does not trump. I mean, Jaworski got the tapes, right? Uh, in, uh, in DICTA uh, and uh, in U.S. v. Nixon and in uh, the um, Senate Watergate Committee uh, case in the D.C. Circuit, uh, there's a very strong suggestion that the House Judiciary Committee sitting in impeachment, sitting in impeachment trumps executive privilege. On the other hand, the Senate Watergate Committee, and I worked for Howard Baker on his Senate staff when he was vice chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee, lost its subpoena for the uh, Watergate tapes. So the, uh, the, you do have certain uh, executive privilege gives the White House a, um, a defense that you don't have in the special counsel case or in the impeachment case. I don't know whether you agree with this, A.B., but I think the it's interesting that you mentioned the Watergate experience. I think the winds have really shifted against the executive. I think that's a political cultural change. I think it's very difficult to go before the court, uh, with before a court, and, I, uh, and basically have the executive argue that on a matter uh, involving the production of evidence that may be relevant to a crime, uh, that, you know, the privilege, in effect, trumps. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong about that, but I think it's just very, very difficult. It'll be interesting to see whether any of these issues are served up in the current administration. So both of you, um, in some ways, had kind of easy clients in the sense that you both served under presidents who were um, you know, really quite, quite disciplined and, and quite concerned about um, soliciting and accepting legal advice. Um, the president, having, the, having any president as a client cannot, uh, cannot be easy. They must all be sort of difficult clients in their own ways. Um, you know, is the relationship we're seeing between Trump and McGahn or Trump, Trump and legal counsel, you know, is it really so unusual or no? When you're the president of the United States and, and your lawyer says things that you don't agree with, you don't necessarily like, is there always sort of that, that tension? Did you guys have those moments of feeling like God being the lawyer's president is a really tough job? I was very fortunate because my, the president that I served was a lawyer. Not only was he a lawyer, he was a constitutional law professor. So <laughs> I didn't have to labor to translate uh, the concerns that, that I had about the law in, in, a, in a language that, that he could understand. We often took pride, and this is just the way 
it just happened to work out this way. I'm not suggesting that every president of the United States has to be a lawyer, much less the constitutional law professor. But we took pride in being able to draft memoranda, say, about constitutional issues. And we wrote them the same way we would have written them for colleagues at the law firm or for the general counsel of a large corporation. We didn't have to go into an explanation of what it meant that there were different standards of review, rational basis versus strict scrutiny, all of that well known uh, to the client. The other concern that I would have, and I have no way of knowing, obviously, um, just how, how far this concern reaches in, in fact, about the current relationship of a White House counsel to a, this kind of president, I'll say this kind for a reason, no government experience, none, zero, no institutional experience with um, sort of the, the processes and the systems on which the government runs uh, in, this, in this country. And I think it's very difficult to take the experience that you've had with lawyers in the very different context in which President Trump has engaged with lawyers in the past. You know, brand, licensing, branding agreements, putting up buildings and the like uh, in New York and elsewhere, and finding a way to adjust to what the role of the lawyer is within an institutional or governmental setting with which this president is completely unfamiliar. I, to me, that would be very difficult to do. Did you have sort of a, Reagan obviously was um, not a constitutional law scholar, but you know, did have experience, had, had held elected office. I mean, was, did you feel like you were in that sort of uh, translation role, or, or was he sort of more of, a, of an ordinary client? Well, no, he, uh, President Reagan's, I think, frustration with lawyers often uh, found their, uh, their roots will in, in policy issues. Uh, he, uh, I remember a, a law professor uh, kept writing articles that there was an inherent uh, line item veto buried in the presentment clause. And of course, uh, line item veto was a major uh, policy initiative of the president, which we can never secure. Uh, so uh, every time this guy, this professor, would publish yet another op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or someplace, uh, off we'd go on another, uh, uh, you know, a, a, I would round up every lawyer in, in the OLC, and uh, we'd provide yet another explanation of why this law professor was wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, it, so it, but uh, on the big issues, the Iran-Contra issues, uh, on uh, on why uh, at the ver you know after election day but before uh, George H W Bush was sworn in we shouldn't pardon 15 people who had ne never gone through the process uh, he was a great client he was a great client he really was uh, he uh, uh, President Reagan kept a daily journal and uh, uh, which uh, has been published but uh, which I ultimately went through and read every page for production of things that were relevant to Iran-Contra. But I'd, I remember priding myself on what a great uh, explanation I'd given him on uh, the Castigar uh, process and why I thought North and Poindexter uh, would never, uh, while their convictions, would be overturned. And, uh, and uh, whereupon I became later read uh, his journal where he said, Call the House came in and briefed me on an issue relating to Colonel North and Admiral Poindexter. I really didn't understand what he had to say. <laughs> so, so before I um, open it up. And I think even Bob would agree that Castigar is a pretty complicated uh, yeah. legal doctrine. <laughs> I just want to, yeah, I, I want to just briefly uh, mention that um, 
you said, is it always difficult to represent a president? And of course, because if you're going to irritate a client, you don't want to irritate the president of the United States. But one of the things I want to say about staff support, which I said earlier, is imagine a situation where you go in and you're giving the, the client information that either in, in, in AB's case, the client doesn't understand or doesn't like. Uh, just, it's just not that the client's doubting your professionalism or the accuracy of your legal advice, but it's not welcome news, put it that way. And then you leave and you have members of the staff coming in saying, Bauer's a jerk, you know? We have the, we, we, can we possibly think of finding somebody who knows where the word yes fits in the human lexicon? Um, and if you have that, it's very, very difficult to do your job because it's already tough enough to be in a position where you're in the Oval Office giving advice and it's not sitting well with the principal. So before we open it up to questions, I did promise that I would ask you both if without violating privilege, you can share your, your craziest moment as White House counsel. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if this is a crazy moment, but it's one of my favorite moments. Um, Bill Litton, my deputy for Rand Contra, and I uh, interviewed President Reagan 13 times uh, for three hours a session on Iran Contra. The arms sales really walked him through all the chronologies. And in uh, one of these sessions, it became clear to me that his recollection and uh, the prior Tower Board investigation had been. Uh, had supplanted his, uh, his accurate re recollection. In other words, he was, uh, someone else's memory had been implanted on his. And, uh, and to the point where it was inconsistent with his own contemporaneous notes. And I was trying to explain to a client, which I think all of the lawyers in this room in the white collar context have had this uh, occur to them, that it's okay to say, I don't recall. It's okay to say, I no longer remember. Particularly when the, the session that he was not accurately recalling was the day he was meeting with Secretary Gorbachev in Geneva. So whether or not he uh, approved a hawk sale that day was, but, it, but in any event, it became very contentious. It became very contentious. And uh, Howard Baker, the White House Chief of Staff, came to me that night and said, you're going to have to apologize to him. You, uh, he thought you were rude. He thought you leaned in too hard. And, uh, and so I prepared my apology and went in the next day, prepared to apologize profusely. Ronald Reagan uh, looked at me, smiled, and said, not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I never had to apologize. <laughs> Susan, I've been rifling through my, uh, you gave me some advance notice of this, I've been rifling through my mind and I've gone from, I've tried to get to crazy, I've gone through, you know, slightly terrifying, totally disappointing, very frustrating, uh, and totally privileged, so I don't know. Um, I'll think about it some more, maybe before we're done. We'll press it. Well, with that, we will open it up. I will, I will let you guys have, uh, have at them. Uh, do we have a mic to pass around to people? I only ask that questions are actually questions, even if you just raise your voice at the end. It is a question. <laughs> Can the president be um, indicted and prosecuted, perhaps not sentenced, during uh, his term? In your opinion? In my opinion, uh, yes. There's a division in the scholarship on this subject. I understand. But uh, I, I believe that the answer is yes. My opinion, no. While he's a, 
uh, my opinion, no, while he's a sitting president. Uh, but I have not read the, uh, the contrary view. I read the OLC opinion that was extant when I was uh, White House counsel. Thank you. Could you talk about the challenge of, in both the Iran-Contra investigation and in the Russia investigation, for both the White House counsel and the special prosecutor independent counsel, of having to deal with the intelligence community and with information that, by definition, cannot be made public in a court of law? Well, obviously, there's the, uh, the gray mail uh, issue, uh, which, uh, which defense counsel are very adept at convincing or trying to convince a judge and sometimes convincing a judge that without uh, disclosing certain classified information in a public court of law, their, their, their client cannot be uh, adequately defended. And indeed, uh, independent counsel Walsh and Iran-Contra uh, wanted to indict the former CIA station chief in Costa Rica and the intelligence community uh, in a uh, uh, decided, uh, Bill Webster, Colin Powell, Bill Odom and NSA and others uh, decided that we could not uh, uh, release that information. And the, and the, and the uh, special counsel was quite upset. So it's, it's, it's very, uh, it's going to be very dicey uh, on methods and sources, particularly if you're relying on intercepts. Uh, it really is. And uh, it's, it's hard to investigate the highly class, uh, to conduct an investigation in an area that's highly classified. And it's particularly hard to uh, particularly hard to uh, uh, to prosecute it. Particularly, I think a defense counsel in this town have become very adept at uh, at using gray mail uh, to defend their clients. What advice, if any, would you give Don McGahn about how to bring the communications function of the White House in tighter lockstep with the White House Counsel's Office? To, to, I'm, to, to, I'm sorry, to advice to, to, to rationalize the communications process? Right, the so sort of you guys mentioned that, um, hopefully this is right, that the, the communications sort of um, process was, was not uh, uh, well-disciplined. So, so I think the question is sort of what advice would you give McGahn to, to help discipline it? The, the, uh, the f first order of business, uh, sorry about that, the, the, first, the, the first order of business is the president's tweeting. I'll leave it right there. If you can't, if you can't wrestle that to ground, I mean, I'll set aside. I, I have other comments to make about how complicated. And I think we don't have time for it here. How complicated the relationship between the White House Counsel and the Communications Office are, is because lawyers are going to have a very, very pinched and sometimes not terribly practical view of what a president's communications should be when the president has ongoing political and policy business to do in the White House Counsel's quite concerned to make sure that the legal territory is properly policed and managed. But, and so it's a complicated topic overall. And some of the more interesting conversations that I had uh, was with Robert Gibbs um, as press secretary in the Obama administration about sort of the White House Counsel's view of, of information management. However, it has to start with the tweets. So you both spoke about your individual roles as White House counsel and Don McGahn's varying responsibilities. Could you discuss the formal regulations governing the role of White House counsel and also how you prepped for that role? There, 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 are, no, there are no regulations governing the no White House rules. counsel's office. I mean, it's a senior personal staff appointment of the president. The office is relatively new in the broad expanse of American history. The first White House counsel was appointed uh, by Franklin Roosevelt and wasn't really functioning in a legal capacity. Uh, and then over time, it developed more and more into a small law office. 
in truth, there are certain traditions and norms, I think you could agree, have developed around the function of the White House Counsel. And the best preparation is, uh, frankly, learning from that experience, the experience of other White House counsels. When, when I was White House counsel, the only time the counsel of the president was mentioned in a statute was that the counsel of the president had the authority to authorize the use of the presidential seal for charitable or historical purposes. Uh, and, and, the only, and the only time that came up was when you, the... Uh, the Presidential Debate Commission wanted to use the seal for uh, for those purposes. I mean, uh, I, I think most of it now is by tradition. Uh, almost every White House now, at the beginning, uh, puts out a uh, an executive order or a uh, presidential directive that says that the only uh, White House staffer who can communicate with the Justice Department about any pending investigations, the counsel of the president to uh, to the deputy attorney general. But almost everything is, is lore, not law and not regulation. Uh, Harry McPherson, who is uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, uh, special counsel and is viewed as a former White House counsel, uh, the great, uh, late, revered Harry McPherson, was stunned when I when I, I, he came over to have lunch with me and saw how many lawyers I had. He had none. He was a, law, a White House counsel of one. So I think we have time for one more question. Uh, thank you very much for your comments. This was really, um, really interesting, really edifying. Uh, clearly, we live in very divisive political times, and you both, I think, have demonstrated a great bit of uh, restraint when commenting on some of the political uh, pressures of the day, but I'm wondering if you might comment as you're in your professional and in your personal lives how you negotiate uh, the divisive times that we live in now and that maybe you have come into contact with before. Could you clarify? I'm not quite sure in our professional and personal lives how we how you negotiate the uh, political divisiveness that we that we come in come in contact with now. To, well, honestly, I thought you meant, you know, how, how, how do you, in your personal professional lives, retain your sanity? I, um, I think that was the question. I, I think that was sort of what you were driving at. Let me just say one thing very seriously, because I have A.B. sitting here. Um, there are these sort of islands of bipartisan cooperation, sort of, uh, you know, obviously the overall national dialogue right now is infected with both polarization and discussion of polarization. But I have found that uh, maybe sometimes behind closed doors and sometimes in other fora, uh, you can transcend that. And you look for the opportunities to do that on particular issues. Uh, AB and I worked on a program over at the Bipartisan Policy Center on vice presidential selection processes, completely bipartisan, Democratic and Republican lawyers, former presidential candidates, political consultants, you know, staff, senior staff from the Hill. And it was really remarkable that people could have a very informed, sensible conversation. And if somebody wanted to take a particular issue off the table, because it was, quite frankly, you know, in some respects, too hot, quote unquote, for their side, that was fine. We'd move on and see what we could do with the balance of what was there. And I, I whether that, the Presidential Commission on Election Administration that I co-chaired with Ben Ginsburg, uh, a couple of several other examples I could give you. You know, that's still very much alive, and that has um, that's helped me retain my sanity, and that's what I think, uh, you know, there, there's, an enduring, there's an enduring sort of feature of that, if you will, strain of that in our political culture, and I don't think it's going to go away. I guess at the end of the day, I have a uh, deep and abiding faith in the uh, self-correcting genius of the American Republic. 
and uh, I, I, I think we're going through a particularly rough spot right now. Uh, what worries me most is really the um, is the media. I mean, now there is the media is, is as divided as the political parties. And uh, I, you know, when I was White House counsel, I, I dealt with the three networks with the uh, the same newspapers that. Um, uh, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, I mean, but now a lot of what this White House pays attention to, I, I don't, uh, I've never heard of. My, one of my daughters who's, who's here, who's a director of media relations for a conservative think tank, she, the, the, the media she deals with, I, I frankly, a lot of them I've never heard of. I wouldn't know where to find them. Uh, and, uh, and that's, uh, but, but setting that aside, I think the American people are, uh, will figure this out and they will force uh, the parties uh, back to uh, together uh, back to uh, uh, solving problems or they'll get rid of them and maybe uh, but uh, so I, I I put my faith in the American people just let me say Susan I, I I should say I'm also on the Brookings board which is why I'm sitting here so uh, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to put in a, a, a Ben and a Susan do a great job at, uh, at Brookings I will also ask you to join me in a round of applause for AB and Bob this is great thank you so much All right, people, don't go anywhere yet. We've got the second part of the program. Uh, but let's get another round. It's not every day that you get two White House counsels in a dirty bar where there's a stampede overhead and it smells like delicious, delicious barbecue. And you, I'm not sure if anybody knows, but A.B. wore his uh, Texas Ranch Hand uh, boots today. Bob, Bob left his at home. To be fair, Tennessee Ranch, my bad, my bad. All right, but you've all been waiting for Ben Wittes, so let's bring him to the stage. You're very patient. You're very patient. Right, let's put this other mic. Okay, so we're going to have a little bit more Q&A. Um, we might have some pyrotechnics. Um, we'll see. We'll see. We haven't asked the ownership if that's viable yet. Um, but I want to. Well, we're going to. So get ready. We want more questions for Ben. But I'm going to exercise the moderator's privilege and ask where we stand now in your estimation with the Mueller investigation. What are the points of friction? What are the the avenues to uh, to indictment that you see? Um, we talked at the bar just earlier about uh, some, some potential avenues for indictments. Is it collusion with Russia? Is it Manafort's dealings? Is it obstruction of justice? You know, in your conversations, what are you hearing? So the short answer to all future of the Mueller investigation questions is that we don't know, actually, because um, uh, I think one of, the, one of the really interesting things about the journalism around this, which has been intense and sustained, is how little window it has given into the actual thinking of uh, Mueller and his shop. And the uh, only reason I can think of for that is that the sources of those news stories are with 
uh, I think almost no exceptions, not plausibly the investigators or people closely tied to the investigation, uh, but they're people in the periphery, uh, particularly in the defense bar and in the administration. And um, the result is that what you have when you look at the Mueller investigation is journalists' impressions of witnesses' impressions of prosecutorial intentions. And that is a very dicey basis on which to make judgments about what is and isn't going on. Uh, that said, uh, let's try. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that there's, broadly speaking, there's four baskets of activity. And I think these are, I think you can say this pretty safely. Uh, the first is the broader, the broad Russia collusion set of questions. Uh, personally, I am skeptical that that is going to produce uh, a, um, a, a, it may produce all kinds of tantalizing intelligence information. I think it probably already has. But uh, translating that, for a lot of reasons that AB talked about, translating that uh, that kind of intelligence information into indictments is extremely difficult under the best of circumstances. And these are not, from an investigator's point of view, the best of circumstances for the simple reason that the investigation is, from a, a counterintelligence perspective, blown. That is, everybody in the world knows that it's happening, and that means it's very hard to conduct under those circumstances. Um, that said, that's one clear basket where there's a lot of investigative activity. Second area is underlying financial transactions. Now, these are, these are related to the first, because if you're trying to think about what leverage the Russians have over somebody, um, looking at old financial transactions is a way of thinking about who has leverage over whom. There's clearly a lot of investigative attention to uh, you know, business deals, particularly uh, that involve um, you know, Central Asian and Russian figures. Uh, the third area is uh, ancillary misconduct by people in the Trump orbit. Um, the most uh, dramatic example of these that are quite visible are uh, Paul Manafort, who, according to the New York Times, has been told he is going to be indicted, um, and, um, and whose house had a no-knock warrant executed against it. That's a, that's a pretty dramatic step. Um, and also Mike Flynn, who, uh, you know, I think the evidence that there's some significant jeopardy there is, is probably pretty substantial. Um, and then finally, there's a fourth basket of activity. And this one is, I think, the real black box, which is the, the larger set of questions around obstruction uh, with respect to the president's individual interactions with the investigation, starting with his interactions with Jim Comey, leading through the firing, and then continuing through various you know, threats to the attorney general, the special prosecutor, uh, and the Deputy Attorney General. And there's a sort of a pattern of activity there that the investigation is clearly pretty interested in. And I noticed today that the Wall Street Journal reported that Ty Cobb has said publicly today that in interviews with the administration and the special prosecutor staff were starting now. 
And so I think, broadly speaking, those are the four baskets. I think it's pretty clear that the ancillary misconduct by people in the orbit is the area that is most advanced. Um, that is, in, those, in that one area, we do seem to have evidence that Paul Manafort was actually informed that there was a, that there was a, um, uh, an indictment against him was likely. But uh, there is clearly investigative activity in the other areas as well. Should we take some questions from the audience now? Sure, ask me anything. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is, this is Ben's live AMA. Given some of the information we've recently heard about Facebook and Russian ad buys, the line we've generally heard is that Russia didn't influence or affect a vote, technically. Could you speak broadly, though, to the fact that it, it seems more plausible now as more information becomes public that there may have been influence campaigns that could have affected votes in a non-technical sense? Yeah, so first of all, I don't know how you would ever measure that. Right, so um, since the individual votes are anonymous um, and you can show that somebody bought an ad, and let's say you can show that somebody bought an ad intending to presumably influence votes, that's why you buy a political ad, right? Um, and you can show that a certain number of people uh, voted in a given state where that ad ran. And you have no way to show how many of those people wouldn't have voted or would have voted differently but for any one factor, whether that's Hillary Clinton's emails or Donald Trump's uh, you know, comments about the wall or that ad, right? So not only can you not show, I think it would be almost impossible to show but for causation or even some kind of contributory causation associated with any ad buy in any state ever. And so my, my guess is that that's the kind of thing that is going to be a matter for historians and a matter for a certain set of Russian politicians to boast about, which has certainly happened. Um, and um, it is also going to be something that will not be, and, and, and maybe an area for future policy making, as in uh, at the, company level, you know, adopting policies that might discourage this sort, of, uh, this sort of activity, or even you could imagine at a congressional level adopting legal policies that would discourage that sort of thing. But I can't imagine that, I can't imagine that you would have a situation in which the, the, anybody could conclusively show that the election was in fact affected. But aren't votes themselves not actually the point? It's the targeting of specific states that were that the Trump campaign may have been looking at or that may have been particularly close that would seem extraordinarily suspicious for Twitter bots or the like to be targeting? So that's a different question, right? So I, I think, you know... <laughs> so, so, so if you were to, to produce evidence... And, you know, we're getting close in some of these areas. But if there were solid evidence that, that the Trump, that people associated with the Trump campaign aided Russian efforts to target people to, uh, in 
in states or anywhere, frankly, with uh, you know, with foreign, you know, with with activity directed by a foreign intelligence service, uh, is a very interesting question whether that would violate any laws and and you know, but it would I think be a genuinely shocking set of revelations, and it would probably involve, you know all sorts of violations of, of in-kind campaign contribution rules because you're not actually allowed to give money to campaigns in a, you know, foreign money into campaigns. But I, I think we are actually pretty far from knowing that at this point. And, and I, I do think that's the, that, that's the sort of tantalizing pot of gold for a lot of people who you know, want to prove the collusion story. That's kind of what they're looking for. I'm, I'm, you know, I have never believed that that was likely to be true, frankly, though I, I'm, my mind is open about it, but I'm, I, it's never been my working hypothesis. But I do think it's, it's an issue that people are actively investigating and thinking about. Hi, Ben. Um, what, uh, was your assessment today from the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the two proposed um, measures to protect the Mueller investigation, right? There was the, um, I believe Booker Graham was one of them, and I can't remember the co-sponsors of the other one, right? And so I know Steve Laddick was one of the right. the four um, people testifying on it and went on, and it was quite lengthy. But do you think that those proposals... Would you favor one or the other, or neither? Do you think they're necessary? Um, I mean, it's an open-ended question because it was an open-ended hearing, right? right. I mean, so I, I did not watch the hearing, and I have not yet read the various testimonies. I am familiar with the proposals, and I actually don't favor either of them. Um, and the simple reason is that I, I think as a functional matter, um, First of all, to the extent that you try to impede the president from removing a special prosecutor whom he really wants to get rid of, uh, there are pretty serious constitutional obstacles to doing that, and there probably should be. Um, and whether or not uh, whether or not you think that that statement is right as a functional matter, if the president really wants to fire the special prosecutor, he's going to figure out a way to do it, and um, and. The remedy for that is the impeachment of the president. And the remedy for the threat of it is the threatened impeachment of the president. And I just think that there's, I, I think these bills send a good signal in the sense that they send the signal in a, in a very bipartisan way from Congress, uh, we're not going to tolerate your interfering with the Mueller investigation. I think that's a very healthy signal for Congress to be sending. That said, I don't think they're good proposals. And so it's, it's sort of sending a good signal with a bad proposal with the, and the reason it works is because everybody knows that the proposals aren't gonna be adopted into law. And so I think there's a little bit of kabuki theater, but basically the, the real message here is if you interfere corruptly and for, you know, for, for improper purposes with this investigation, uh, you will be impeached and removed from office. And if Congress is not prepared to say that, then uh, no law that it passes will protect the special prosecutor. And if it is willing to say that, then it doesn't need to pass such a law to protect the special prosecutor. So I hate to ask this, but everything's possible now. So what would happen if Trump were to go to Idaho and have a gigantic campaign rally 
and announced that he's going to pardon everyone whose name has been mentioned in any of the grand juries, in emails, in text messages, a blanket pardon, and therefore Mueller should stop. I have a second question. Why Idaho? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think, yeah, I think the, the answer is we would all denounce his choice of state for such announcement. Um, I, look, the president has the power to do that, has the raw power to do that. And a, the answer is a very similar answer to the answer uh, associated with the firing of the special prosecutor, which is, uh, you know, it is within the power of Congress to say there is such a thing as the, you have certain powers, and if you exercise them in entirely corrupt and self-serving ways for, in a fashion that is essentially self-dealing to protect yourself from legal jeopardy, we will consider that an impeachable offense. And the, 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 the remedy for that activity is congressional willingness and resolve in that regard. And in the absence of that, there is no protection against, against exactly the situation that you're describing. And the only good news in this space is that actually this is an area in which Congress has been uh, uh, not entirely weak need. And the example here that I think is there are two. One is the very hearing that we had today, which I do think is a real message that you know there is a bipartisan commitment to the integrity of the Mueller investigation. But the second one, which you know people. Large, a lot of people didn't notice because Jeff Sessions is, I, I don't, maybe this will come as a surprise to some of you, not the most popular guy right now. Um, but, um, you know, when the president started threatening Jeff Sessions, a lot of people in Congress responded to that as a serious rule of law problem. And, um, and I think if you look at the response to the threats to Mueller, the threats to Session, and as a collateral matter, the threats to Rod Rosenstein. Uh, I do think there has been a message sent from Congress that our appetite for what you did to Jim Comey is not unlimited. And, um, and I think that message has been heard, actually. The, the, the president really backed off his uh, mistreatment of, of the Attorney General, and he has not been spending his time, you know, uh, threatening Rod Rosenstein recently, and 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 he's actually not been spending a whole lot of time talking about how evil Bob Mueller is, or how all his people are conflicted, or how you know he may have to fire him, right? And and I think that there's there have been pretty loud warning shots and. Uh, and I think they have been heard. They've been heard more obviously than Kim Jong-un has heard the warning shots about missiles. <laughs> All right, we've got, we've got time for one last question, and then we're going to wrap this up. This better be a boom-style question. <laughs> Although it doesn't have to be on Russia. We can talk about NS, you know, targeting of drones. Please, go Come on. All right. Was, there's this breaking story about the DHS conducting social media surveillance on naturalized citizens, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that. So I uh, actually have not seen that story. Oh, so it's I, very I, I, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, we'll come back to that another time. At the bar, at the bar. Uh, one last one over there. So this um, piggybacks actually off of just what you were saying. Do you, what do you think would actually be a red line for Congress to, to move forward with kind of an impeachment process? So I, I, I actually, that's a, a good question on which to end because I, I, I think it's a... I think it's a really interesting question to ponder. So, so here's the good news. Um, right before they went out on recess for, for the summer, con the House Judiciary Committee did pass a resolution uh, calling for uh, you know, an investigation uh, by the House. Um, so that's the good news. The, the bad news is that the investigation that they called for, and I'm seriously not making this up, was of Hillary Clinton's emails, Huma Abedin, and Jim Comey's relationship with New York Times reporter Mike Schmidt dating back to 1993, his history since 1993 of leaking to Mike Schmidt. I, Mike, Mike was 10 years old in 1993. <laughs> um, that's true, by the way, um, that that's what the investigation was called for. And moreover, um, and to put a serious note on it, to just to you know, understand the quality of the staff work involved, um, this resolution was written by a, a group of staffers who uh, posted to a pro-Trump uh, subreddit, what do you think we should investigate? <laughs> and this resolution was actually passed as a, as a function of a sort of crowdsourced, here's what a bunch of uh, people on Reddit think the House Judiciary Committee should. So if you're this is how we get our articles and ideas that foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, if you're asking, like, what would it take for the current, as as currently composed, with the current threat perception facing members, uh, and in their relation to their electorate, um, I think it would take something like an earthquake. Um, and what it, specifically what it would take is a deeply changed perception of what threatens them electorally. And for many of them, the answer may be that nothing will change it. They actually have to not be in the majority, or they have to be defeated altogether, or they have to be, um, uh, you know, th they have to not be in control of the agenda of their committee. Um, I do think there's a really interesting question what you know what the mar what what impacts the marginal uh, as a functional matter we're talking about the marginal Republican House member um, I would have thought that the firing of the FBI director combined with the subsequent boasting about how you had done that and relieved pressure on yourself to an adversary foreign government would have been enough to do that. And so in light of the fact that I was not just wrong about that, but I was sort of dramatically wrong, and that what in the wake of that, what the House Judiciary Committee wants to investigate is the relationship between that former FBI director and a New York Times reporter when he was 10 years old. Um, I, I don't really trust myself to have a good instinct about the answer to that question anymore. That said, I think just to describe the parameters of that landscape is to say that it's a, that's a very big hill to climb. And I think we're going to have some opportunity to discuss that again in the future. Um, 
I think we should do this again. You guys come back if we do. It's pretty good. Thank you all very much for coming. It's, yes. uh, it's uh, unspeakably moving uh, to see this kind of turnout for this. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're very grateful to you all for being here and for your, uh, all of your support of our work over the last few years. Uh, and uh, we look forward to doing a lot more of things like this. You've been listening to Bar Review Live on the ER. This event was recorded live in downtown Washington, D.C. on September 26th.